Hey, uh, hello to all our listeners and welcome to uh, TNT ESQ, uh, along with my co-host Teresa Quinlan. We make up TNT. We're here to explode the status quo. This series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently so we can do differently. Uh, our guest today is Oscar Trimboli. Oscar is on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world. He's an author host of an Apple award-winning podcast called Deep Listening and a much sought-after keynote speaker. Uh, he's passionate about using the gift of listening to bring positive change in homes, workplaces and in the world uh, through his work with chairs, boards of directors, executive teams in local, regional and global organizations. Oscar has experienced firsthand the transformational impact leaders and organizations can have when they listen beyond the words. In his free time, Oscar lives uh, with his wife, Jenny, in Sydney. Uh, he helps first-time runners and ocean swimmers conquer their fears, uh, contributes to the cure for cancer as part of the CAN2 uh, cancer research charity. Huge welcome to Oscar for what I'm sure is going to be a very informative discussion. We are so grateful to uh, have you joining us for the conversation today. Welcome. Thank you, and looking forward to listening to your questions today. We like to kick off with a question about um, your obsession, your obsession in a good way, your, your passion. One of your big obsessions is listening. We all do it to a varying degree of success. Anyone who has a passion and spends several years investing in their body of work often has a starting point where the story begins for you. Look, the story is a story of many stories, but uh, the, the couple that kind of always I look back on and go, wow, uh, that was a moment. Growing up in a area near the Villawood Immigration Centre in Australia, so when immigrants moved to Australia, they were in a suburb very close to the school I went to. So I went to a school with 23 nationalities. And one of the things that unified us all at school was playing card games in the breaks. Many of the people were fleeing from war-torn parts of Southeast Asia, from South America, from uh, Central and Eastern Europe and everybody spoke another language except for me and I, we always played card games in teams of four. Most people spoke in their home language because that would give them an unfair advantage over the other team, tell each other what cards they had on. But people wanted to pick me on their team despite the fact I couldn't speak another language and what I realised really quickly was I was listening for body language back in those days, you know, 40 years ago. And uh, that, that was an interesting hint for me that from a very early age, I was doing things a little differently from others. I was listening a little differently. And if we fast forward to nearly eight years ago, we were in a meeting. I was working at Microsoft and it was a negotiation between our global head office, our regional head office and our local head office between Seattle, Singapore and Sydney, where we were trying to get the lowest budget possible and our global head office was trying to give us our largest budget possible and the vice president uh, at the end of the meeting asked me if I could stay behind and the only thing that was going through my head is uh, how many weeks of salary have I got in the bank because when your boss asks you to stay behind that's not a good sign and what Tracy said to me then was Oscar I'm not sure you realize what you did at the 20 minute mark you change the tone of the meeting. You change the way 13 people across three different continents thought about a particular issue. If you could teach the world to listen the way you did, you could change the world. And although that was another moment I remembered, it wasn't until probably about three years later, <laughs> Reese, that I decided to do something with that. And now I'm on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world. And ironically, I have to do that by speaking. <laughs> it is a conundrum <laughs> it is a paradox before you jump in trees i just want to go back to you said when you were when you were a young child you were, you were doing these card games and you had this innate ability to read the body language or listen to the body language sorry yeah um how did that happen you know being such a young person was it is it your your parents was it how does is that just something you've had innate skill and you've just built on it it's because I think it's an unusual quality to have for a young child. I don't, you didn't tell us exactly how old you were, but I'm picturing, you know, 
10 years old, something like that. I, I think it was the necessity that forced me into the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to adapt when everybody around you has a higher skill set than you. So everybody else could speak another language and I had to find a way to adapt and use whatever skills I had to be successful in that situation. So I I think it was absolute and pure adaption that uh, got me into that situation. If I wanted to play card games, I better better figure out another way to be useful in the card game. Uh, I found people's eyes gave it away. I found their eyes um, and the position of their eyebrows gave it away. I found their uh, tilt of their head gave it away. I found how their spine was sitting on their body gave it away. And I started, I guess, to formulate really quickly some kind of heuristics or codes that would kind of give me a connection between what I thought they were holding versus what their face was telling me. And I guess in the early days of trying to decode what people's faces are showing you're not going to get it right every time but it was a simple rule if you weren't useful for the team you got kicked off so I wanted to play (laughs) simple as that (laughs) belonging is a strong motivator yeah and 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 it definitely was in, in that context so you know I think difficult situations help us to build different muscles and we shouldn't kind of shy away from those complex difficult situations and i think that that's my hypothesis i'm i'm really guessing and speculating there i don't don't think i actually know i've had the pleasure of reading through some of your work and a particular item that stood out to me was being able to be far enough outside of yourself to be able to pick up on these nuances of listening that go beyond just the words that we might be hearing. And I would love if you can explain a little bit more about what seems like it is an opposition that to be able to do that, we have to learn how to listen to ourselves first. Yeah, most listening literature, if you've actually taken the time to try and read it, um, only 2% of people ever make the effort to learn how to listen all the literature tells you to start to focus on the speaker as the starting point for listening. It's, it's handy. I'm not sure it's productive or impactful because if you turn up to a conversation with your own radio station playing and you're tuned into your own frequency, it's very difficult to be available to the conversation. If you've got multiple browser tabs open in your head that are thinking about the last thing you did or the next thing you're supposed to do or this meeting didn't go so well last time. I'm not sure how it's going to go this time with all these things going on in your own mind. It's very difficult to be available to actually listen. And for most of us, we go from distraction to distraction and we're not even conscious that we need to be in the moment and available. I think Teresa, another thing that I kind of try and create a significant point of distinction Listening is to help the speaker make sense of what's being said. It's not for the listener to make sense of what's being said. And if we go through that journey, again, that requires a significant level of detachment from both what's going on in your own mind and equally what's happening in the dialogue. It takes a detachment to get above the conversation and look at it from a third person perspective. And I think in that moment, most of us, because we're struggling with a, a cell phone that's making noises or vibrating or beeping us because our last update came through or our laptop's going or our, or our iPad is giving us a notification, 86% of people can't get into a conversation because they're distracted. So the starting point for me for all listening is making sure you listen to yourself so that you can empty what's there so you're available for the other person. I think about when my husband is looking for something on his computer and he's got like 27 different tabs open. This analogy is really fantastic. And when he then wants to show me things on his computer, several times I say, could you please slow down? I, I, first of all, I can't see anything that you're looking at. And, and secondly, I, 
I'm, I feel so lost in this moment <laughs> that I don't even know how you're capable of, of paying attention to what you're looking at or what you're doing. And I guess this has some sort of relatability to our need for multitasking, our sense of urgency, our sense of accomplishment, our sense of maybe comparison around if I don't do this many things in a day, I'm not going to be as good as my peer sitting beside me. How much of our environment contributes to our ability to listen? More than half. So you can, you can improve your listening productivity by 50% just by switching off your electronic devices. Wow. But that is a very simple tip for anyone listening to be able to do straight away. Yeah, and for a lot of people right now listening to this, they're completely freaked out because the level of addiction is so high. They can't even think about going cold Turkey and switching the device off. So think about a range of things you could do. If you can't, if you think you're, you're the most addicted person in the world, just simply turn the red dots off, turn the notifications off on all your apps on your phone. Uh, next step would be switch it to grayscale. Next step would be switch it to silent. Next step would be switch it to flight mode. Next step would be switch it off and put it completely out of arm's reach. You know, that, that's a journey you can go on. And uh, a great writer, James Clear, who's written a great book called Atomic Habits, mm -hmm. says to, to make change, you've got to make the habit change as simple as possible. So he talks mm -hmm. about if you want to go to the gym, the habit you need to form isn't going to the gym. The habit you need to form is put your shoes and your gym gear out on the floor next to your bed. So the minute you step out of bed, you actually have to step on your clothes for the gym. Too many of us make change so difficult because we try too many steps. So for me, again, just trying to say to people, just make that really simple change. And, and the rest becomes simpler because each of the five levels of listening are foundational. It's very difficult to access level two, three, four, and five if you haven't done some basic foundational work at level one. Because if you do have all those browser tabs open in your mind, the likelihood that you're going to be able to pay attention to the conversation is near zero. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of us, what we're not conscious of when you talk about multitasking, Teresa, um, multitasking for repetitive tasks is, is very simple. You can multitask. Driving an automobile is a good example of multitasking. But the practice of listening takes place in the prefrontal cortex, the most modern part of the brain. It's just here in front of the skull. And task switching costs are really high when you're using that part of your brain. So to do complex creative work, to solve problems, to do things that are not repetitive tasks requires significant effort for that part of the brain. And the minute you switch to a different task, the cost of coming back into the complex or creative tasks that you're trying to undertake, which listening is an example of, the switching cost is really high. And that's why some people, when they try this the first time, they said, listening makes my brain hurt hmm. because they're, they're not conscious of the task switching that's going on for us. So again, with multitasking, it's this wonderful paradox that rote tasks and repetitive tasks can be multitasks, but really complex tasks, ones we haven't been taught frameworks around, like listening, mm. like writing, like speaking, like having an effective dialogue, all require you to be completely present in the moment. And if you aren't, there's a cost. And I think one of my sessions is not just about listening, it's about the commercial cost of not listening for organizations, for leaders, for employees, for the media that interact with those organizations, as well as regulators, for example. It's interesting that you brought up um, being taught. Um, it's an idea that we've talked about a bit before, about how these ideas can be taught at perhaps an earlier age being taught how to you know, use maths and, and that sort of thing, which doesn't necessarily always come into use during your day to day, whereas listening is obviously something that everyone does 
pretty much all the time, every day. Mm. How, how could we start to teach kids, let's say, how to listen better? Is that something that you're, you're looking at, you've worked on? If I think about the quest to 100 million deep listeners, one of the building blocks in there is to work, and this is going to take a decade, with educational institutions, mm -hmm. probably some of the most conservative institutions in the world, very evidence-based organisations, and thus why uh, two years ago we started building a database of research for 1,410 listeners that we're tracking over a period of time. Reese, I sense the question comes from a parent and child orientation, you know, how do we teach children how to listen? And the good news and the bad news is you're already teaching them how to listen. You are your children's listening teacher. You are role modeling listening to them every single day. When you're not paying attention, you're role modeling listening. When you are paying attention, you're role modeling listening. When you're distracted, you're role modeling listening. When they're tugging at your leg and wanting to talk to you and you're too busy with your head in your phone or thinking about something else, you're role modeling listening. So for parents out there, the simplest tip I can give you is when you're listening to your child, make sure you're at their eye level. So if you can bend down and your knees aren't as bad as my knees are, um, come down to eye level. I make a point of doing that with my granddaughter, Ruby. She's six years old. And when we speak, I'm always either squatting down or kneeling down, or if it's a different kind of situation, I'm always happy to bring Ruby up onto a bench or a chair so my eyes are at her eye level. And that completely inverts the power dynamic. It inverts your orientation around where your attention should be. And the same is true if you're phoning your children or you're FaceTiming your children. Um, if you're in a hotel room, for example, and you're phoning your children, get down to their eye level. It will completely change the way you relate to them while you're listening and it will change the way they feel they're listened to as well. Oh, thank you, yes. <laughs> I went through a series of emotions there where at first I felt really badly about myself as a parent because I have modeled, I've had moments of modeling poor listening behaviors and I do see them reflected back now. My son's 13 and so I do see at times he can be attempting to listen while he's also on his device. I also see his feedback when he's attempting to communicate with me and I am doing the same thing in return. He's been quite vocal in letting me know, you're not really listening. I can tell you're not really listening. And it is a strong motivator when we have people important to us, um, letting us know how detrimental it is to the relationship that you're not being available to them. Mm. The second emotion I had was hope. Because the things that you are describing are really quite simple in their nature to do. We find execution is a little bit difficult because of perhaps what might be going on inside our head for prioritization. Yeah, and it kind of struck me about two years ago, I was speaking to a local subsidiary of a Japanese organization and the CEO, who's uh, originally from Japan, stood up and gave me a very elegant introduction and said, I've read Oscar's book. I've read Oscar's book twice. I've read Oscar's book three times. Oscar's book is simple to read. It's just very difficult to practice. Not because what he tells us to do is difficult. It's just because it's practice. And for a lot of us, we can commit time to going to a gym and improving our practice and improving our health. And that's great. That's a foundational habit that we want to develop. But if you're listening in the workplace, a minimum you'll be listening is 55% of your day. If you're leading people, you'll be spending up to 65% of your day listening. If you're in executive roles, you could be spending anywhere from 75 to 83% of your day listening. And if you're struggling with meetings that either run over time or unproductive uh, listening uh, is the kind of leadership hack of the 21st century. In the 20th century, we've all been taught how to speak, speak with influence, 
speak with cut through, speak with power. And a lot of leaders inside organizations by their second, third decade inside the workplace probably have been on anywhere between three and seven training courses on how to speak. Yet mm. the skill they spend the other half of their day using the most is listening and they don't know how. And leaders who've engaged with me kind of say, Oscar, just in that simplicity, I start to notice so many different things about people when they're speaking to me just because I'm paying attention. And I always talk about there's a distinction around attention. Paying attention sounds like a tax. Giving mm -hmm. attention sounds like a gift. So for a lot of us, when we get to noticing about how attention is being given out, it's really critical. I saw this role model beautifully. It was uh, a visiting uh, technology leader from Microsoft way back, 2010. He'd flown 24 hours from Seattle to Sydney. His name was Peter and I was hosting 20 CEOs in a room, in a boardroom in a hotel in Sydney and Peter had arrived directly from his flight straight into this meeting and he sat at the head of the table and I'd just done the introduction and he stood up, went to his bag and put his cell phone away, came back to the head of the table. He said, look, I'm really sorry. I apologize. The most important thing I can give everyone right now is my undivided attention. I hope you forgive me. And in that moment, what do you think the other 20 execs did around the table? Put their phone away? Put their phone away. <clears throat> yeah, so 17 of the 20 put their phone away. The other three put them on vibrate because I noticed the three phones vibrating while I was in the meeting. And for all of us, whether we've got the title of leader or not, mm -hmm. we can all be listening role models. We can all role modeling what great leadership is about now that group of ceos still meets in various forms many years later and they call it the peter permission club and the smallest group can meet is six um, but they've had up to 13 people and they've all moved on to different jobs and all of them talk about the fact that uh, they put they do this kind of ritual before the meeting starts in a coffee shop where they all switch their phones off and they say to each other, the most important thing I can give you right now is my attention. And then the meeting starts. Now, wouldn't that be a great way for all meetings around the world to start? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a airport security or something. You have to go through a, a doorway <laughs> and it sets off the buzzer unless you put your stuff in a special slot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, debr the debrief from the meeting was interesting. After 45 minutes, Peter left and I was debriefing the group for another half an hour about action items, what to do next, what can we learn and all kinds of things like that. And what they consistently said in the theme that came out was the quality of the discussion was the highest quality that discussion they can remember in, in many years in that case. Mm. And for a lot of us, we struggle to remember a high quality conversation where someone truly listened to us. But when someone has, it's, it's, quite memorable in one way that fills me with joy but in another way it fills me with sadness because i think they're rare events so mm -hmm. um you know i've got a lot to be grateful for peter for showing everybody in the room what it means to give attention it really seems like quite a beautiful thing to do because even hearing the recount of the story i had a heart moment where i felt oh that would have felt so lovely to be in that space and it did feel like, even though I wasn't on the receiving end, <laughs> that that would be and would be sensed as a gift to give someone your attention and then to model the behavior of what giving attention actually looks like. Because I have mm. been in spaces where someone will say that and then they don't actually do that. So I'm wondering maybe you could speak a little bit about what does it look like on the outside when we are demonstrating deep listening? I think the first thing that happens when deep listening is present is um, we're actually conscious of our physical environments as a starting point. So for a lot of us, we have conversations where we have conversations by default and we're not even conscious of 
the physical environment in which we place ourselves. So for a lot of us, uh, we can think about a one-on-one -on -one conversation in the workplace or, or a team conversation in the workplace. For a lot of us, we'll automatically go to somebody that's got a table and sit down and face each other uh, directly opposite each other. But the deepest listening conversation really should take place with nothing in between us and that reduces one of the barriers to listening. So a lot of people aren't even conscious of their physical space around them and what barriers get in the way of, of listening, listening to body language, noticing and sensing what's happening with people's energy. And sometimes the most potent place you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation is saying to the person, hey, rather than sitting down, let's walk uh, around uh, the, the block. Let's walk to the local park. You know, I'm very fortunate in the Sydney CBD, it's within 11 minutes walk of the Botanic Gardens in the center of the city. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my clients on a second meeting, I'll, I'll make an invitation to them, hey, let's go and explore a different space. And I'm very lucky in the Botanic Gardens has a view of the, of the water, but equally it's got some really secluded spots that are really quite peaceful uh, right in the middle of the city. You can hear birds, uh, you can hear the sound of absolutely nothing. And for a lot of us, we just need to become conscious of when deep listening is present, we design our listening environment. We just don't default into the meeting room, the coffee shop, the cafeteria. Uh, we can all think about that. Now, the same is true when we think about conversations that take place on the phone and, and conversations that take place via video as we're speaking right now. Again, we need to design the space around us to ensure that our distractions are to a minimum and we're able to focus completely during the conversation and we're not being distracted by other things going on in our virtual environment as well. So Teresa, I think the first thing, and I know these are all sounding very simple, but the first thing is just to design the physical space to be the most productive from a listening point of view. And for most of us, that starts with removing any kind of distractions that would distract us visually or anything that would distract us from an audio or a sound point of view as well. So in your book, in the book, it talks about the, the power of, of silence as being integral to the art of deep listening. Are you able to explain a bit about that to go into a bit more detail about how, how important the silence is in, in deep listening? In the West, we have different relationship to silence than people from the East or ancient cultures. Um, so whether it's the Inuit of North America or the Aboriginal or Maori communities of the Southern Hemisphere, tribal leaders from the jungles of South America or Africa, silence is a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of authority. Yet in the West, we use phrases like awkward silence, pregnant pause, deafening silence we have this really interesting relationship with silence. Uh, silence can do a lot of heavy lifting in most conversations. And if our orientation is to help the speaker make sense of what they think, rather than for us to listen for meaning, uh, our conversation changes dramatically by the use of silence. Dr. David Rock, uh, a neuroscientist, uses this phrase, let silence do the heavy lifting in the conversation. Now, this is many moves ahead, Reese. This is that level four listening, mm -hmm. listening for what's unsaid. And if we understand three numbers, we understand what listening is all about. Those three numbers are 125, 400, and 900. So when I speak, I speak at about 125 words a minute. You can listen at 400 words a minute, yet I am thinking at 900 words a minute. And this is where silence comes into it. If I'm thinking at 900 words a minute, and yet I'm speaking at 125 words a minute, it means the first thing that comes out of my mouth 
there's a one in nine chance or 11% that what I say is what I mean. And for most of us, we would never go to a doctor and say, hey doc, thanks a lot for that surgery advice, 11%. Sounds like a great odds, I'm gonna take 11% chance of surgery. No, you wouldn't. You'd ask for a second opinion. You'd probably ask for a third opinion, to be honest, if you had 11%. And if I went to my doctor, John, and said, you know, Dr. John said to me, hey, Oscar, good news, 11% chance you'll be able to run after knee surgery, I would be asking for a second opinion. Mm -hmm. So how do you get those other 800 words out of people's heads? Because when most people are thinking, their mind is like a washing machine in wash cycle. It's sudsy, it's agitated, it's just spinning around on the same axis and it's not making any progress whatsoever. Yet the minute they speak, it's like the rinse cycle. It's where the clear water comes out and all of a sudden they come to a different insight. You see, the brain is wired differently when we speak compared to when we think. And if you were to look at an MRI of the brain, the synaptic connections and the pathways are very different when you're thinking about a topic compared to when you're speaking about the topic. So for all of us, Here's two simple phrases you can practice that will help elicit silence for both you and for them. If they're finished saying something, ask them what else or ask them to tell you more. And what you'll notice really quickly is their state will change. Their spine might go up. Their breath might go in. And they'll say words like, and these are magic cue words, so listen out for them. They'll say things like, hmm, well, actually, you know what we should be talking about that we haven't discussed? Or they'll say, hmm, what matters the most on this topic is? Or they'll say, thinking about it again, what's the most critical thing is, and off they go. Now, what they've had a chance to do is explore those other 800 words stuck in their head. Now, I would say just venture that twice in a conversation. But if you're skillful, if you're comfortable, you don't even have to say what else or tell me more. You can just wait. You can just take it three deep breaths yourself because most of the time, the speaker will fill in that sentence for themselves. It's just in the West we've got into this habit that the minute somebody we think finishes talking, we think that's our cue to start to speak because we're worried that we're not going to get noticed or we're worried our opinion doesn't count. And if we just embrace a bit more of the East, in China, in Korea, in Japan, it's quite common for senior leaders to use silence uh, to elicit a different perspective from the group. In our, in our Aboriginal communities in Australia, it's not uncommon for when they meet uh, for the elders to hold a space where there can be up to half a day of silence in, in groups of up to 16, 20 leaders and future leaders coming together to explore an issue. And, and they're, they're, they're not uncomfortable with that. But for us in a workplace, we feel like our value is expressed by how quickly we respond or how humorously we respond mm -hmm. or how insightfully we respond. I think the other thing that's present when we're listening deeply is we don't answer the first question that we're asked because quite often the question we're being asked isn't well formed. And for a lot of people, a simple question we could do is clarify, is this what you mean by the question? And then all of a sudden they'll say something like, well, no, what I meant was this. And your simple act of clarification helps the conversation stay on track rather than go off on a variant or a tangent that was merely your interpretation because you were listening through a filter. So for a lot of us, getting comfortable with silence means getting comfortable with our breathing. And when we feel like we need to speak, just pause, take a deep breath all the way through our nose, all the way down our throat, all the way to the bottom of our lungs and then exhale through our mouth. And by the time we've done that simple five to seven second exercise, 
you'll be surprised what the other person says in that gap. In emotional intelligence, we call or relate that a little bit to our impulse control. It's the avoidance of leaping. Something I've had to practice myself quite a bit in leadership. And when I started as a leader, I felt the necessity to share everything that I knew that would be my value point would be to help grow other people by just getting all of the information out of my head and into their head. And suddenly I realized that the speed at which I was trying to do that, most people could not absorb because I was just dumping on them, <laughs> thinking this was great value. As I became a more coach-centered leader, I stopped talking as much. It was dramatic how much I stopped talking because most of the time, and what I find now in my profession, it isn't about what I tell them that makes the impact. It is about the next question that I ask. And sometimes I can't create the next question until they've done all of the talking. And so I love this recommendation of tell me more, what else? Those are really powerful questions in coaching to get people to, as you say, get the rest of the information out or to explore more of their own thoughts and feelings. Perhaps they've got 900 words waiting and another 900 sort of right behind it to come in. And allowing that space for people to just explore is incredibly powerful. And I completely agree. It takes a lot of practice to be I'm not sure if the word is confident, to be self-confident, that that is what the other person needs. They don't need your intellect, They, at least not straight away. They might need some of it later. We just perhaps don't need to lead with that. What, what was the tipping point for you? Emotionally, I was feeling frustrated. And then when I sat back to reflect on it, I thought about why I was frustrated because people weren't doing what I needed them to do, which led to, um, it really isn't about me. <laughs> and I laugh now because in the moment when I had that aha, I went, oh, holy shit, I'm doing everything wrong. <laughs> so what's the opposite of what I'm doing? Oh yeah, shut up. That would be the opposite. Let's give it a try and see what happens. And it was like night and day as far as the experience went. And was it easier for you to do that? Easier as in easier as a leader, because then I carried less of the weight. Mm. Not easy to execute because I was in a, in, a, in, in a different pattern. And I had to be cautious of the thoughts that were entering my mind. So I was reflecting and reminiscing on all of these experience I'd had when I was reading your book, because in the yourself section of the five levels paying attention to what was going on in my head was the need to want to interrupt the need to have to share something and once i was much more cognizant of that and mindful of how it was biasing my participation i got a lot better actually fairly quickly hmm. and for a lot of us as leaders what what we've talked about is silence in a one-on-one -on -one context Another example of listening to silence and using silence is listening to those who haven't spoken up in a team meeting. And I'm curious what's going through Reese's mind at the moment while he's listening to us in dialogue. I'm just enjoying picturing um, Teresa being in a less than uh, completely in control uh, scenario because the persona that she uh, exhibits to me on a regular basis and through her coaching and, and the posting is, is one of supreme confidence and collectiveness. So uh, it's always nice to hear some of these uh, details of before. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because I was interviewed a couple of weeks ago about how do you listen at Thanksgiving when you know somebody's going to turn up with the same story over and over and over again. And the context that was given to me is, so we know my uncle's going to turn up and share his political views and try and convince everybody of his political views at the, at the Thanksgiving dinner. How can we listen to him mm -hmm. as opposed to zone out and, and, and completely ignore him and, 
I simply said, if I was there, I'd, I'd ask him the question, tell me about the time when you didn't have these views mm. and how did your mind get changed? And it kind of blew the person's mind because they actually, <laughs> uh, I don't recommend you do this, by the way, they actually called them straight after they spoke to me and asked that question. And their relationship was transformed because there was a seminal moment that changed the uncle's political views. But what was most important in that dialogue, the uncle pointed out that it seemed to be rare for somebody to care enough to ask him that question. Mm. So for a lot of us, when we find listening to people with strongly held views, um, that can be unproductive for both because one person adopts a passive position and one person adopts this very active position. So again, a couple of simple questions that you could use to break the pattern to help them listen to their meaning much more is, when wasn't this the case for you? Or when did you originally form this view? Take me back to when you formed this view. And then all of a sudden, both how you have the discussion and what you discuss changes dramatically. For me, listening is the willingness to have your mind changed. Mm. That's for me is the definition of listening. It's the willingness to have your mind changed. And for most of us, uh, we listen through a very rigid orientation. Uh, two years ago, I thought, well, if I'm going to practice what I preach, I spent a month every day listening to a podcast or watching a movie or listening to a radio station or watching a TV channel or reading literature, which I fiercely, fiercely disagreed with. And that was because I was willing to have my mind changed. And in some cases, Maybe it reinforced my view, but at least I was listening. In some cases, I went, wow, that what they said there was much more nuanced than what I was interpreting that by ignoring them. So for a lot of us, when you're in disagreement is lean in and listen more rather than kind of pushing it away. And I think for a lot of us, it's a muscle we're not comfortable to use because we're in this titanic battle in our own head before we even get to the conversation with a model of assumptions and filters that said, oh, Uncle Jim's always going to turn up to the Thanksgiving dinner and try and convince us to vote for such and such a party. And, and that's not listening. So for all of us, how willing are we to have our minds changed when we go into a conversation? Are we really just there to have our own opinions heard? We've talked about the importance of curiosity as a fundamental for what makes good leadership uh, moving forward. So what you're saying there speaks to that sort of idea. I believe that essentially the deep listening is about comes from curiosity as as, as kind of a building block. If you're able to break the cycle of the repetition repetition story that you're hearing from Uncle Jim, say to just stop him in his in his track and ask him a question to maybe derail and restart a new cycle. It won't necessarily change what he's thinking, but it will build a, a kind of connect, a new connection or a bridge between you and, and the other person. And from that, you can increase your your listening, your understanding, and further embed your curiosity. <laughs> yeah, and I think two two stories bring that to life for me. One a very public story, and one uh, a story through some work I did with a with an organisation in a workshop with their leadership team. The first story is. Jackson Hole, Wyoming, 2005, August 28, 10.30 a.m., the first speech after the morning tea break on a Saturday on a glorious uh, summer's day in, in a beautiful mountain country in, in the United States. Jackson Hole, Wyoming is the annual meeting of the central bankers of the world, uh, whether that's the European um, bankers, North American bankers, every central bank across the world met and there was a, a presentation being made by an electrical engineer who was a vegetarian who loved reading Tolkien. Um, Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings um, book series. And he was from a very different 
professional background than every other central banker in the room. Every other central banker in the room was a classically trained economist. He wasn't. He worked for the International Money, Monetary Fund, but he'd written a paper explaining that the plumbing system of the banking industry was blocked up and about to explode. He was explaining the consequences of the subprime mortgage crisis and predicted that when those pipes explode, uh, there's going to be an awful lot of bad smell around. And Dr. Rajan was completely ignored. In fact, he was heckled by the central bankers in the room, Hank Polson, Alan Greenspan, many of the North American central bankers completely laughed down his theory. The paper was published back then and it explained in very, very microscopic detail what was broken in the banking system and the subprime crisis. Now, because he wasn't classically trained, because he was Indian, because he wasn't from the prevailing dogma of the industry, they ignored him. And two years later, the consequences started to emerge of exactly what he'd written in his paper. It's still available on the internet. There's a short version, 28 pages. There's a longer version, 300 pages. Um, some nerds like me will read all 300 pages. Mm -hmm. Now, for a lot of us in the workplace, we choose to ignore opinions because they're not from our industry. They're not from our culture. They're not from our profession. They don't have enough experience in this problem set. And how many opinions are we pushing away because the cost of not listening in that case was $4 trillion, millions of jobs lost globally, economic downturns, and quite possibly the seeds of the current political discourse in the world were sowed way back then in 2005, 6, 7, 8. So the question I'd pose to you listening is, whose opinions are you ignoring? Because they don't fit your model your frame of the world and which opinions should you be seeking out for many of us we might be in a meeting with eight people but only four or five will actively contribute and typically the gravitational pull of the dialogue the black hole the magnetic conversation tends to get polarized around two binary opposing opinions in the room and if we're not careful that meeting becomes unproductive because we don't listen to all the voices when we come into the room of this workshop I was facilitating in Melbourne, it was a really narrow, dusty room. And um, have you ever been in a room where the whiteboard markers have left their dust for want of a better word all across the bottom of the floor and yeah. at the bottom where the eraser is and the air conditioning system wasn't great in this room, but it was about 10 to 12. There was, 11 people in this group plus myself and the CEO uh, basically said to me, you know, lunch is coming in at 12, Oscar. We're going to finish at 12, aren't we? And I just smiled at him. And with that, he gave me these laser beam eyes that if you're in a comic strip, it would have exploded my head if he had a chance because it was like, you just didn't, you just ignored me, you know? And what what we've done, we're in the middle of this exercise at 10 to 12, which said, if, if this organization was an animal, what animal would it be? And everybody was saying an eagle, an osprey, some kind of bird of prey that was really agile, could swoop and adapt and get prey really easily and soar above the clouds. And for 10 of the 11 people, they virtually said the same thing. And there was one person left in the room at 10 to 12. And that person was Elaine. And Elaine was a card carrying member of the introvert club. And you know, the card carrying members of the introvert club, it's a really simple test. Because if you say, put your hand up if you're an extrovert and they'll stand up because they just want to be noticed. They thought you said stand up because they weren't really paying attention. And then you say, put your hand up if you're an introvert. And some people will put their hand up and they'll say, yes, I'm an introvert. But the real introverts will never put their hand up. They don't want to be noticed. And if you're a card-carrying member of the introvert club, you, you agree never to put your hand up when that question's asked. And Elaine was one of those people. 
but she hadn't spoken and she hadn't offered what the organization was. And so I simply gestured by turning my body towards her and outstretching my hand. I didn't say a word. And she started to engage with my physical presence and looked at me in the eye. And she said, I thought it was obvious. And she said no more. So I just took one step towards her and reached my hand out a little bit further. And I could feel the laser light smashing into the back of my head from the CEO going, what? come on, lunch is coming. Why are we taking time here? You know, it's, ten, it's five two now. And Elaine said something that stopped the room. She said, I thought it's obvious. I thought we were a snake. And in that moment, the tension rose dramatically in the room. And I'm curious, Teresa and Reese, what's mm -hmm. going through your head when you hear Elaine say snake? What's, what are the attributes of a snake that are going through your mind? Sneaky. Constrictive. Venomous. Predatory. Stealthily. Slimy. Silent. <laughs> Dangerous. Anything else? I don't know snakes. Evil. <laughs> Evil. <laughs> um, I, I think about the snakes I see locally. Some of them are really tiny. <laughs> and as soon as you come around, they like, they skitter away and then hide under a mm. rock unless the sun is out and then they're like basking in the sun. <laughs> mm. So those guys are really quite docile and maybe skittish. Yeah. So part of this story you need to be aware of, Elaine is from an Asian culture. In Asia, they have a different relationship with snakes. In the West, we have a relationship with snakes pretty much the way you guys have just described it. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I held the silence. I held the tension for at least a minute. And by now, the CEO is literally tapping on the table and pointing to his watch. And I said to Elaine, tell me more. And she said, snakes sense ahead of time. Snakes anticipate, but more importantly, we've forgotten to be the snake we used to be. We used to shed our skin every season on behalf of our clients. And we don't do that anymore. We're rigid and we're stuck. And with that, the tension broke in the room. And with that, there was a, a, a visible an audible sigh from everybody else in the room because they realized that they hadn't thought about the positive attributes of snake. And they got into quite a big debate and they decided that snake would be the metaphor for their product code names going forward. So all the different product releases were named after snakes. They made snake beanie toys. They integrated the snake metaphor into their sales presentation. And all of a sudden the team was unified. Yet, how many of us just ignore the Elaines in the room because lunch is coming? Mm. Now, we had lunch at 12.35 mm. and we had sandwiches. They weren't cold and it wasn't a problem, but it would have been a problem if we didn't take the time to hear what was unsaid in the room. So for a lot of us as leaders, what deliberate practices do we have in place to listen to what's unsaid? whether that's in employee engagement surveys, whether that's in one-on-ones, whether that's in team meetings, whether that's listening to customers, suppliers, regulators, the media, our shareholders, the marketplace in general. If we listen for what's unsaid, our productivity and our impact will be beyond words. Yet most of us are stuck in our cell phones watching the beeps, the buzzes, and a social media feed that will make no difference for us for the rest of our life. I implore everybody to just spend a little bit more time giving their attention to somebody else. And then that way you can start to understand the power of listening. Because listening is a skill you learnt before you were even born. You learnt to listen to your mother at 30 weeks. You could distinguish your mother's voice from any other voice. And at 32 weeks, you can distinguish Beethoven from Bon Jovi from Beaver. Yet the minute we come into the world, we come into the world kicking and screaming, 
and we think the only way we can be noticed is by speaking. And yet there's an irony in that the most memorable teachers we've ever had and the most memorable leaders we've ever had are all those who we remember that they listened to us and saw who we were and listened to our possibilities. Yet for most of us, we're too busy interrupting people to tell them how brilliant we are to mm. not take the time to listen to them. And if we just did that a little bit more, we wouldn't have work in progress meetings month after month after month that said, mm. Oh, I thought you said this, I've come back and delivered something a little bit different. It's probably cause you weren't listening. If you think about every project that runs over schedule, if you think about every project that's late, if you think about every project that doesn't deliver to the user's requirements, I can guarantee you it's an absence of listening, not the multiplication of speaking that has been the difference between that being done on time or that not being done on time. So if you want four hours guaranteed back in your week, just listen more. Initially, it feels like it takes a bit longer, but you'll be surprised. You don't have repetitive meetings. You don't even have to have minutes confirming exactly what we agreed in the meeting because we were all of it listened. The reason minutes agreed to confirm the actions from the meeting is because we don't trust anybody because we don't trust that we're not listening. If you're actually listening, the difference between hearing and listening is taking the action. Mm -hmm. So for most of us, if we're present in the meeting and we're paying attention, the actions will take place. But even the process of taking minutes is an act of disrespect that says, I didn't think you were listening. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write this down because I don't trust that you're going to do it. But if we listen, we know those things will happen. And guess what? Now I don't really need to listen. You're going to give me the notes anyways. I can go back to thinking about my grocery list. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Oscar, you so brilliantly summed up what Reese and I like to call hashtag not anymore. So we can't not pay attention to this cost of not listening. We also can't yeah. not pay attention to the benefits of deep listening and getting ourselves into as many levels as possible or as high as we possibly can climb in our levels of listening in every aspect of our life. And especially, you know, in our workplaces and leadership, the necessity of doing so. So to help our listeners start doing something differently, what would you recommend be the first thing that they can start doing today? Switch off all the electronic devices. If you've mastered that and you mm -hmm. already switch off your electronic devices, Drink a glass of water in every meeting you're present in. A hydrated brain is a listening brain. And if you do that already, take three deep breaths prior to a meeting and um, become present through breathing. And if you've mastered that, notice the breath of the speaker. But for 86% of us, Teresa, it's a simple act of switching off your mobile and electronic devices before you go into a conversation. Thank you so much, Oscar, for being here with us, for sharing your passion, for sharing so many interesting stories to bring to life, how listening can be incredibly impactful. And if our audience would like to connect with you, they can do so on LinkedIn. It's Oscar Trimboli, uh, the listening myth or listeningmyths.com. Are there any other ways that people can learn more and get in touch with you, Oscar? Teresa, if you just go to listeningmyths.com, there's a range of resources, including jigsaw puzzles, playing cards, the book, the podcast series, the listening quiz, where you can discover which one of the four villains of listening you might be. So listeningmyths.com is the starting place for all those points of connection. I'll try and keep it really simple and just give you one thing to do. Beautiful. So to end our show, we like doing a rapid fire Q&A with each of our guests. Uh, 10 statements, two choices for each. When you hear the choices, just pick one. If you can. Oh, I don't like binaries. <laughs> no, no, not another one. <laughs> Proven to sometimes be a little tricky for some people. <laughs> some really interesting answers along the way. Are you ready? 
Uh, okay, so I just have to choose A or B. Is that what uh, the game okay. is? Yeah. All right, bring it on. I'm strapped in. I'm ready to go. Number one, manager or leader? Leader. Active or reactive? Reactive. Black and white or gray? Gray. Optimist or realist? Realist. Canada or England? Canada. Number six, heart or head? Heart. Empathy or assertiveness? Assertiveness. Hmm. Introvert or extrovert? Omnivert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we might have to change that question. We get that response quite a bit. <laughs> um, logical or emotional? Logical. And number 10, innovation or process? Process. Thank you for having a bit of fun with us. Thank you for a whole lot of learning. To our listeners, thank you for being part of this episode of TNTESQ. Yes, I just want to say, Echo, that um, I had the pleasure of reading through your book earlier. I think I have also listened to a podcast that you've been on before. So um, I made uh, a lot of notes. I had a lot of uh, insightful awakening moments. And um, I'm definitely going to be practicing more the art of deep listening. So thank you so much for sharing just a, a few small segments of, of the amazing work that you're doing. And um, I encourage everyone to check out the, uh, the website and, and, and the book. So thank you so much for being part of the show, Oscar. Thanks for giving me all your attention. Thanks for listening.